0: Vampires are a virus. They arrive with plagues and pandemics, arising with tuberculosis and typhus, dysentery and diphtheria. But a new kind of virus violently infected humanity at the turn of the 20th century, slaughtering millions. And it gave rise to a new strain of vampire. This plague twisted human civilization out of shape, destroyed our sense of self, and shattered our souls, leaving them stunned and reeling from sheer shock. Modern horror grew in its cold, malformed shadow. Few events shaped human history as absolutely as the Black Death in the 14th century, which exterminated millions and completely reshaped European culture, warped the Christian church, and reordered the global economy. 600 years later, we did it again. Some people tried to make sense out of the chaos by hammering it into words years have passed since the great war one no longer sees the terror of battle in men's eyes suffering and grief have shaken men's hearts and have little by little suspended their desire to understand the cause of the monstrous events that depleted the world like a cosmic vampire drinking the blood of millions a limbless corpse the tunic fitting the swollen body like a glove a boy without a head like a rum jar without a label A form, fast-turning green, lying in a pool of gray-green gas it. Men had lost arms and legs, brains oozed out of shattered skulls, and lungs protruded out of riven chest. Many had lost their faces. The wind kept moving the gas towards the French lines. We heard cows bawling and horses screaming. The French kept shooting. And then everything was quiet again. In a while, the chlorine gas cleared, and what we saw was total death. All of the animals had come out of their holes to die. Dead rabbits, moles, rats, mice. The smell of the gas hung on the few bushes which were left. When we got to the French lines, the trenches were empty, but in a half mile, the bodies of French soldiers were everywhere. You could see where men had clawed at their faces and throats trying to breathe. Some had shot themselves. The horses still in the stables, cows, chickens, everything. It was all dead. Even the insects were dead. From that moment, all my religion died. After that journey, all my teaching, all my belief, everything I thought about God left me never to return. World War I began in July of 1914 and ended in November of 1918. Historians can talk about geopolitics, the sweep of history, the realignment of Western nations, all they want. But let's be very clear— This was nothing less than four solid years of mass murder. Final death toll? Ten million soldiers exterminated. Almost ten million civilians slaughtered. Twenty million human beings wiped out of existence by an enormous engine of war that we built with every resource at our disposal and fueled with the blood of our young. World War I was not a war, it was not a crusade, it was not a military campaign. It was four years of non-stop death, killing 620 people per hour, every hour, 24 hours a day, 10 murders per minute for four unrelenting years. The Black Death took twice as long and only killed 5 million more people. The ceaseless slaughter destroyed Victorian sentimentality about death. No one wanted a photograph with the corpse of their son sitting in the parlor as if he was still alive, when the corpse of their son was a bloated, flayed, mockery of a human shape dragged back from the mud of France. Suddenly, books like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Frankenstein, and Dracula didn't feel like macabre fantasies for morbid dreamers in quiet parlors and libraries. They felt like dispatches from the real world. Helpless Dr. Jekylls impotently watched their comrades gang-rape and torture civilians before giving in and indulging their own dark appetites. Armies of Mr. Hyde's trampled Europe into a corpse-strewn hell. Legions of Dr. Frankensteins birthed scientific monsters. Tanks that crushed men beneath their treads, flamethrowers that seared off their faces, poison gas that scorched their lungs. Monsters were no longer fantastic creatures who presented their inhumanity with easy-to-see scales and fur, fangs and claws. But like Count Dracula, they wore the faces and forms of men and had nothing to offer the world but death. World War I destroyed all our illusions about ourselves. After the armistice ended the fighting, everyone sat down in Paris to negotiate peace. But allied forces continued to blockade the North Sea for another year, cutting Germany off from vital supplies in order to wrangle more concessions from them at the negotiating table. 100,000 civilians starved to death in those 12 months. No one thought it was a crime. No one called it a tragedy. It was simply the new face of the 20th century's grim geopolitics. We would kill and kill and kill. We would kill babies and children and grandparents and horses and dogs and cows. We would slaughter humans in the tens of thousands. Anything that stood in our way, anything that kept us from getting what we wanted, we would murder and murder and murder until the world drowned in corpses. And we called this halting the Hun, stamping out the Kaiser, crushing the German, holding up your end, fella. Germans were depicted on recruitment posters as roaring hunchback gorillas, monsters, mad brutes, pop-eyed lunatics coming for our women, burning our cities, seeking to destroy our way of life. 20 million soldiers came home with their minds and bodies shattered by the war. Many of them would never return to the way they had been before. In France, these broken mugs, took to the streets, demanding to be seen as human, demanding to be treated like the sons and brothers they were. The Illustration magazine described one of their marches, writing about the human faces hollowed out by bullets, pulverized by grenades, stabbed and slashed by bayonets, calling them monsters whose lot is worse than death. Civilian survivors pulled themselves out of the ashes, Starved and weakened by disease, traumatized by torture and rape, their country shattered their farms, devastated their families, mutilated. But World War I was merely one bloody hand clawing at the face of a screaming planet. The Russian Revolution of 1917 turned into a six-year civil war that murdered one and a half million soldiers and four times as many civilians. 1918's flu pandemic turned people's immune systems against their own bodies. Another 50 million people died. Between 1914 and 1923, 22% of the global population died of disease, were murdered on foreign battlefields by strangers, were murdered in their homes by soldiers whose language they couldn't understand or they starved chewing leather, chewing bark, sucking stones, anything to relieve the endless hollow pit inside their bellies, dying only after they had forgotten what it ever felt like to feel full. The hollow-eyed, haunted humans who staggered out of this vast burial ground that lasted less than a decade had to learn how to communicate in a new language. A language as dark, grotesque, and disillusioned as they were. The language of horror. Welcome to Super Scary Haunted Homeschool, Episode 4, A Meeting of the AV Club. Homeschool. The war turned Germany into a corpse. 15% of its male population were dead. Crushed by debt, hyperinflation tanked its economy. It took 42 Billion Deutschmarks to equal the buying power of one American cent. The Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire were gone. For 400 years, they had battled over Serbia, Transylvania, Wallachia, Romania, and Hungary, making those war-torn, plague racked regions fertile vampire country. Now, all of that was over. It was sunset for the German Empire. The country became a republic. Paying ruinous reparations to the Allies, there was no money left for veterans' pensions, no money for war widows, no money, period. Riots erupted. Mutilated men stumbled through the streets begging for bread. Everyone starved. But in the midst of this adversity, the film industry thrived. Silent film companies sprang to life, flourished briefly, sent off spores, went bankrupt, collapsed, and reformed refreshed—a field of filmmaking fungus with its life cycle set on fast-forward. Producers greenlit anything that might make a Deutschmark. Filmmakers from all over Europe made their way to Berlin. Poverty and need became the seeds of great filmic invention. Albin Grau had served in the Serbian campaign, a savage year-long invasion that ground so many German soldiers to a bloody pulp that reinforcements arrived at a rate of almost 200,000 every month for 12 months. In Serbia, the German army used gang rape to terrorize civilians. They murdered prisoners of war and burned their villages for fun. By the end of the fighting, Serbia had lost over 365,000 soldiers. As Bulgaria's prime minister said, Serbia simply ceased to exist. Grau emerged from this carnage with a single story swirling around inside his skull. While delousing a Hungarian comrade, the soldier had told Grau that his father had been a vampire. He even had the paperwork to prove it. Yeah, back in 1884, Daddy got crushed by a falling tree. He died before the priest arrived. And so we put him in the grave without last rites. Mama and me, we think this feels so sad. But our neighbors begin to get sick and die. And that's when things got very bad. Mama said, how can it be my husband who is dead and gone? But these people are dying one by one. Then the grocer and the neighbors said that they don't think Daddy is dead. They've seen him come up from his grave and go slinking into windows. And we don't get to have a single choice. We must dig up his cold corpse and stake it to the ground, then burn Daddy to ashes and scatter them on the cold wind. Then they stamped this paper. See, we can show it to anyone we need. It's a memento mori for my father, our very own undead receipt. After the war, Grau ran into another survivor of World War I, F.W. Murnau, an aspiring director and writer who had been drafted at the age of 26. He had survived the Battle of Verdun, which saw 700,000 men slaughtered, and then, hoping for something slightly less fatal, he joined the German Air Force, where he survived eight crash landings before being captured and serving out the rest of the war as a prisoner. Murnau emerged from the war with his body intact, but his heart broken. His lover... Hans Ehrenbaum de Giel had published his first book of poetry and caught up in the patriotic fervor of the day, promptly enlisted in the army, and was sent to the Eastern Front. Russia's Eastern Front was brutal, to put it kindly. One and a half million German soldiers died there alongside two million Russians. They died in combat. They died of wounds. They froze to death in the field. They died of disease. They were beaten to death, blown apart, burned. Ehrenbaum de Giel died during fighting by the Narev River when his post was overrun by Russians armed with clubs and bayonets who engaged in what was later described as berserker warfare. Imagine being a poet, enlisting in the army as a grand romantic gesture and ending up beaten to death left dying on the ice, thousands of miles from home, never to be warm again. Bella Ferenc Dezo Blasco was a lieutenant in the 43rd Royal Hungarian Infantry, another volunteer who survived the Eastern Front, only to be sent to the Carpathian Mountains where he joined the ski patrol, which had a 50% mortality rate. He was wounded three times, at one point burrowing beneath a mound of the corpses of his friends to hide from Russians storming the trenches. Finally, he was discharged after a mental breakdown. The year before he met Albin Grau, F.W. Murnau had shot an unauthorized, pirated adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde called The Head of Janus, featuring the same Bella Ferenc Dezo Blasco, who by then had changed his name, to Bella Lugosi. Grau saw in Murnau someone with a knack for dark material and a total disregard for copyright, just as strong as his own. And he thought he was perfect to illegally adapt Bram Stoker's Dracula. Grau rounded up money from a businessman, Enrico Dykman, and founded Prana Films. Prana was the name of a popular theosophical publication, deriving from the Buddhist concept of breath as life. Prana immediately announced a slate of several films as soon as it was formed. Dreams of Hell, The Devil of the Swamp, and Dracula. They barely had the budget to roll film. They definitely didn't have the money to pay for something as abstract as the rights, but without the rights, they needed to disguise their ripoff. Grau hired another World War I veteran, Henrik Galin, to set Dracula in Germany, chop off the beginning and end of the book, and change the names of the characters. Count Dracula became Count Orlock. Jonathan Harker became Hutter. Mina became Ellen. And Renfield became Nock. They searched Stoker's book for a new title because they couldn't use Dracula and finally landed on Nosferatu. What is Nosferatu? Stoker used the word after reading it in Emily Gerard's Transylvanian superstitions, but no one knows where Emily Gerard got it. The Hungarian and Romanian word for vampire is vampir, So everyone's best guess is that it's a mistranslation of the Romanian Nestrit, which means insufferable, obnoxious, or nasty. Shot in 1921, barely three years after the end of World War I, Nosferatu was forged from war trauma. Gustav von Wagenheim, who played Hutter, had served on the Western Front before being discharged due to an eye injury. Cinematographer Fritz Arno Wagner had been in the German cavalry unit, but had been discharged in 1915 after receiving a wound so hideous he never talked about it or his war service for the rest of his life. Composer Hans Erdmann served in the army. Murnau, a veteran, directed. Grau, also a veteran, designed the production and the storyboards. Galine, a veteran, wrote the script. And Nosferatu was a mess. Prana spent more on publicity than they did on production. To save money, it was one of the few works of the new German Expressionism shot on location. The story is sappy, the acting is hammy, the costumes and props look cheap, but Nosferatu sears itself into your brain because it is the first poisonous emanation from the shallow graves of the restless World War I dead. As if he was receiving transmissions from the future, 17 years before World War I broke out, Stoker had crafted the perfect World War I allegory think about the plot of Dracula. An innocent young man is sent deep into Europe to do his duty by his elderly, money-hungry boss. There, he finds nothing but ruins and an undead corpse that drives him mad. His mind shattered, the young man is rendered useless and can't protect anyone as this living dead thing claws its way back to his home and threatens to contaminate and kill everyone he loves, even claiming his bride, his hope for the future, for children, for a family, taking her in a foul act of necrophilia. Only the rising of the sun, a symbol of reason and rationality, can dispel this unstoppable gothic darkness from the heart of Europe. The image of actor Max Schreck's Count Orlock infected popular culture, a rabid, rat-faced freak with bulging eyes and too many teeth. It became the second most famous figure of the vampire, reproduced in Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot, in the anime Hellsing, in Guillermo del Toro's Blade 2*, in Star Trek Nemesis, as Count Nightwing in Goosebumps, as Pitor in What We Do in the Shadows, in the game Castlevania, and on and on, surviving hundreds of years after his death. Wherever you see a pointy-eared, bald-headed, skeleton-fingered vampire, you are seeing the Children of Max Schreck. Nosferatu premiered at the Berlin Zoo on March 4, 1922. By that summer, Prana was bankrupt. No one wanted to see their movie. They released one more film, Warning Shadows, another expressionist horror show, and no one wanted to see that either. They were both flops. Some people blame Prana's bankruptcy on Florence Stoker, Bram Stoker's widow, who sued them the second she found out about their film. 64 years old, totally humorless, and completely prudish, Florence Stoker is definitely not the villain of this story. When Nosferatu came out, she was living in genteel poverty, her one asset, the copyright on her dead husband's book. And here it was, being released as a movie all over Europe, and no one had even asked for her permission. The Germans had killed a generation of England's best boys, and now they had stolen her one asset. Barely able to afford a lawyer, with the help of the British Society of Authors, Florence Stoker launched a series of lawsuits during which Prana behaved abominably. They would plead poverty to escape damages while also releasing Nosferatu in city after city, pocketing the proceeds with one bony hand while holding off Florence Stoker with the other. This cat and rat game lasted for three years before finally ending in July 1925 when German courts finally honored Florence Stoker's copyright claim. But Prana just shrugged. She couldn't get any money out of them because they didn't have any money, so instead, Florence Stoker doubled down and had every single print of Nosferatu rounded up, thrown into a pile with the original negative, and burned to a cinder. Just like killing a vampire. At the height of her legal battles with Prana, Florence Stoker was approached by one of the most famous names in the theater. Hamilton. It was Hamilton Dean, the cut-rate king of the provincial melodrama. Dean's family knew the Stokers. In fact, they owned land in Dublin right next to Bram's father's house. And Dean had worked in Stoker's touring theatre company. Now, he ran a low budget touring theatre company of his own that made its way around Great Britain's hmm, third tier cities. No London, no Manchester, no Leeds or Liverpool, just tiny teapot sized towns like Derby and Morecambe. He didn't deliver sophisticated entertainment. He delivered predictable melodramas full of fainting maidens, good girls fallen into bad ways, weeping mothers, then fathers, all set on depressingly bargain basement sets of wallpapered flats, dusty velvet furniture, and painted window panes drooping with dusty drapes. But Dean fell in love with Stoker's Dracula, and he kept bugging Florence. I want to turn it into a play. 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 He could see it before his eyes on every empty stage in every drafty hundred-seat hall he played. A tall, mysterious gentleman, two swooning maidens, a manly husband, a brave fiancé failing to save his true love from sin, wolves howling on the moors, stakings by green lantern light. Dean saw the surface of Dracula, not the subtext, I think it's fair to say. He saw the costumes and the sets, not the disease and the sex. And Florence Stoker wasn't convinced. She resisted Dean again and again and again until finally, in the midst of her legal battle with Prana Films, she realized maybe it was a good idea to license an adaptation that would at least put some money in her pockets. And Dean, well, he was an insufferable pipsqueak, but no one else was exactly beating down her door. I mean, except the Germans, and they'd stolen it in the first place. So Florence Stoker offered Dean a totally terrible contract that she may have hoped he would turn down because it dropped the bulk of the royalties for writing the adaptation into her own pockets for doing nothing more than sitting there and not suing. Dean, who had to figure out how to adapt her husband's sprawling, continent-spanning novel into a simple stage play and write every line himself, got a thin sliver of the royalty money for all that work. but. She gave him what he truly craved. Permission to turn Dracula into a theatrical play. This same terrible deal-making instinct would happen years later with one of the actors in Dracula, and you can argue that it had already happened to Albin Grau. Something about Dracula overwhelmed certain personalities and made them slaves to its whims, short-circuiting their common sense. Under the spell of the vampire, they became addicted to conjuring Dracula into existence, even if it wound up costing them cash. Clutching his contract to his breast, Dean retreated to his dressing room, ready to begin his fully authorized stage adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, only to face the biggest problem of all, his budget. He didn't have one. Dean's plays were bargain basement affairs that couldn't afford big sets. They couldn't really afford small sets. He had his actors wear their own clothes on stage because he didn't have a budget for their costumes. Confronted with Stoker's epic he got shrinkin'. He chopped off the opening and closing since they were set in Transylvania and that would be expensive. He stuffed Stoker's sweeping saga into a drawing room melodrama. He made Dr. Seward Nina's father rather than her suitor and he set the action all in Seward's asylum where Renfield is a crazed inmate, not because he heralds the coming of Count Dracula, but because before the play begins, He went to Transylvania, not Jonathan Harker, and was bitten by the Count, which drove him insane. Dean also had the problem of slipping this grotesque, undead Count past provincial middle-class propriety. Stoker's Count is a wild, powerful, gruesome freak with a long mustache, bad breath, and hairy palms, but Dean's Dracula is a suave, debonair gentleman in evening clothes, someone you could comfortably invite into your... Lunatic Asylum drawing room for tea. No rat-faced Count orlock here, rising from his coffin like a stiff boner and spewing disease from his carpet of rats. This Count Dracula looked like a visiting ambassador or a foreign dignitary. Dean's play opened in 1924 and became a huge, huge hit, touring one-horse towns non-stop for years. It proved so popular that demand for Dracula crowded out all the other plays in Dean's repertory and finally convinced him to abandon the Hick Sticks for London slicks. Dean opened Dracula after much pressure at the Little Theatre on the West End, Valentine's Day, 1927, with actual nurses stationed in the aisles in case anyone fainted from fear. To make sure they weren't wasted, he also hired people to faint from fear. Dean's record, 39 faintings at a single performance. Dean's Dracula begins with an actor imitating the howling of a wolf off stage. Then, people entered the drawing room and talked. And talked. And talked 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 for a very, very long time. The censors had censored the count's climactic staking, so Dean staged it almost in total darkness lit by green flashlights held by the actors who also helped move scenery on and off stage. Rather than smashing a mirror that confronted the Count with his own lack of reflection, Count Dracula almost smashed it, but managed to stop himself at the last minute because, hey, does Hamilton Dean look like he's made of mirrors? The London critics flocked to Dean's Dracula, and they hated it. Dean read the reviews, and they were so bad he got ready to close the play. But just as he'd discovered a previously ignored audience and the sticks who were starved for simple, straightforward scares, apparently London was too. Before he could shutter the house, people began to show up the London Dracula ran for hundreds of performances. It became the city's summer sensation, constantly moving to bigger houses, one after the other until it outgrew them. At one point that summer, London was raking in the loot while three different Dean companies did Dracula in the provinces. Finally, After years of all this Dracula drama, an American producer deigned to notice that, while this was not proper theater by someone like Sir George Bernard Shaw, it seemed to be enjoying some small success. And so he pinched his nose and came to Florence Stoker and asked to take Dean's play to Broadway. Well, Florence Stoker thought she'd finally hit the jackpot, but there was one problem. Dean's script, which included lines like, well, sometimes way back home I've caught a whiff of garlic from some dago or Mex in the subway, but I never saw red like the Count just now. That's got me beat. Or? I have sorrow if I have given you the alarm. Perhaps my footfall sounds not so heavy as that of your English plowman. It's not that Dean's writing wasn't PC, although it wasn't. It was just bad. To write a new version for Broadway, The producers hired John L. Baldiston, a journalist who'd seen action covering World War I, and they dumped Dean's script. They also dumped Dean's Dracula, who was played by Raymond Huntley, Florence Stoker's agent's brother-in-law, whom Dean had hired to butter up her agent. It wasn't that Huntley was terrible. I mean, he wasn't great, but he wasn't that bad. But Huntley haggled for $125 a week to perform Drac in New York. The Broadway producers preferred their discount option, Bella Lugosi. Bella had immigrated to New York, and his own best hype man, he claimed to have played all of the great dramatic roles of the theater in my native Hungary. But not really. Back in Hungary, in the big plays in the big cities, Bella played small supporting parts, only getting to unleash his inner thespian in the A-list roles when B-list companies toured C-list villages. Even in F.W. Murnau's film adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde, the head of Janus, he hadn't played Dr. Jekyll. He hadn't even played Mr. Hyde. He'd played Dr. Jekyll's butler. But when Bella moved to New York, he got to play the big roles in Hungarian language theaters, while he also got to play the smaller heavy parts and minor dramatic roles in English language theater. Which was probably because his English language stunk, and he had to learn all of his lines phonetically. During rehearsals, Lugosi was terrible and the producers considered firing him more than once, but his hooked on phonics English turned out not to be a bug, but to be a feature. It caused him to speak in a slow, laborious, Rosetta Stone rhythm that would ultimately become the speech pattern of Count Dracula. Finally, Dracula opened on October 5th, 1927. The Reviews? Vogue magazine. Dracula is fun. It would probably be more fun if it was less shoddily produced and performed. Alexander Wolcott said, Ye who have fits, prepare to throw them now. The New York Sun drawled, I found much of Dracula terribly entertaining. Sometimes the chaste ips inside of me said tush tummy rot, and unavailing things like that. Sometimes I had to grunt like a grown-up over such foolish sights as a bat, which juggled around on the backdrop with all the liveliness of yesterday's washrag. But I was bullied out of noticing lacuna like that by the sheer animal horror of the story. Souvenir demon masks were sold in the lobbies. Nurses monitored the audience for fainters, a trick stolen from Dean. And this time, Dracula actually smashed that mirror. I mean, they could afford a new one every night. The show was still cheap. It needed to make about $7,000 each week to cover its cost, but it was raking in $13,000 a week. That's $6,000 in pure profit. You can afford a lot of mirrors for profit like that. But Dean wanted more money. He'd given away most of his royalties to Florence Stoker, and he dreamed of heading an American tour. Furious when the producer said no to his idea of taking Dracula on the road, Dean threw together a stage version of Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla and threatened to tour that instead. Realizing that they didn't quite own the actual vampire concept, and that people wanted to see vampires, Dracula or otherwise, the producers decided Dean could tour Dracula. Then, after a while, they closed the Broadway run, which lasted about 240 performances, which was way less than it got in London. And Lugosi went out west with Dean for a 10-week run in Los Angeles and San Francisco in early 1929, which got the attention of the LA Papers. Florence Stoker was just as unthrilled about all this as Dean. The producers had kept her blood pressure really high by constantly missing royalty payments. Her blood pressure was so high, on a pretty regular basis, that when she picked up the paper one day, her head almost exploded from all that hot blood. Because she read a headline. Universal Studios has bought the rights to Broadway sensation Dracula. Plans to make it a starring vehicle for Conrad Veidt. A German. Another goddamn German. Once again... Here were people handing around Florence Stoker's property without even contacting her about it. Right on cue, like a corpse that wouldn't stay in its grave, re-enter Nosferatu. Prints of the German silent film ripoff had resurfaced again, this time invading America. Even worse, one of the exhibitors on this run tried to sell the remake rights to Hollywood himself, cutting Florence out of the picture completely qa headache-inducing, stomach-cramping negotiation between Hamilton Dean, Florence Stoker, Universal Studios, Metro-Golden-Mayer Studios, writer John L. Balderston, and the Broadway Producers. Throw in the Nosferatu Bandits and the Great Depression kicking off in October 1929, right in the middle of all this legal mud wrestling, and I'm going to save you a headache by skipping to the end. One year later, in 1930, Universal closed the deal to turn Dracula into a motion picture. Which was weird, because not a single person at Universal wanted to buy Dracula and turn it into a motion picture. A reader report written for Universal claims that Dracula contains Everything that would cause an average human being to revolt or seek a convenient railing. Another reader wrote Absolutely no. Who would want to sit through an evening of unpleasantness such as a picture of this type would afford? Carl Lindley Sr., the founder and head of Universal Studios, said, I don't believe in horror pictures. It's morbid. None of our officers are for it. People don't want that sort of thing. Actually, I take it back. One person at Universal, one single solitary person, did want to turn Dracula into a motion picture. Junior. Junior was Carl's son. He'd been born Julius Limley, but changed his name to Carl Limley Jr. when Carl Limley Sr. made him head of production at Universal Studios as a birthday present when he turned 21. That's how the Limleys rolled. When Carl Limley Sr. gave his niece Rebecca Limley her first acting role in 1925's Phantom of the Opera, she changed her name from Rebecca to Carla as a way to say thank you to Uncle Carl too. Universal Studios, however, wasn't a gift worth changing your name for. It was Barely worth changing your pants. <coughs> Specializing in drecky B pictures, Universal was, like Hamilton Dean's Touring Company of Dracula or Dracula's Big Broadway production, the very definition of low-budget, low-brow schlock. But Junior, he had big-budget, high-brow dreams. He wanted to class up the joint. First movie, King of Jazz, a technicolored musical spectacular for the jazz age featuring the Bronx sisters and the Rhythm Boys. An animated sequence starring Oswald the Lucky Rabbit started the film. Oswald's a funny little fella dreamed up and drawn for Universal by a promising young scamp by the name of Walt Disney. Junior spent two million dollars to produce this extravaganza and reviewers called it A dull melange. A lavish disappointment. Miles too long. King of Jazz flopped hard, losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's okay, because two days after it came out, Junior released his second movie, the ultra-classy Super Deluxe, all quiet on the Western Front about the hell of World War I. Made in dour black and white and running two and a half hours, so you knew it was super-duper serious way over budget at 1.25 million, the critics raved and it made 3 mil at the box office and won Oscars for best picture and best director. Junior was a hypochondriac kid, terrified of germs and infection. His office contained a pharmacy of pill bottles and powders, and now he wanted to make Dracula, the most pestilential property on the market? He wanted to turn that into a universal picture? He did, and he didn't care who hated it. He was Junior Limley, damn it. He ran the studio. And he turned out to be right. Thanks to Dracula and Frankenstein, 1931 was the only profitable year Universal Studios had in the 1930s because Americans, apparently, were desperate to see their nightmares on screen. They just didn't know it yet. Previously, there'd been some grotesque Lon Chaney crime films in the 1920s, and Chaney had been Universal's big star in Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera before he signed a much more lucrative contract with the far more prestigious MGM. But in terms of supernatural horror movies, there hadn't really been anything before Dracula. I mean, nerds will argue the point, but Dracula is pretty much American cinema's first real horror movie. And in its wake, Jr. unleashed a gang of these films to pummel Depression-era America's traumatized psyches into mental mush and provide the template for horror movies for the next 100 years. Under Jr.'s frequently washed hands, Universal released Dracula, Frankenstein, Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Old Dark House, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Black Cat, and Bride of Frankenstein. We're still living in the shadow of these movies today. Over the last decade, Universal Studios blew almost half a billion dollars trying to resurrect their horror franchise from the 1930s with stars like Tom Cruise and Benicio Del Toro. They failed miserably because they were missing an essential ingredient. Junior. His contemporaries had a lot of things to say about Junior. Junior was an idiot, said one actor. Junior was retarded, said another. But Junior knew how to put a package together. He had terrific taste and talent and was always willing to spend more money to make a movie better. He gave his directors a lot of freedom and encouraged them to go dark, dark, dark. He may have been young, he may have been dumb, he may have been retarded, But he knew something that half a billion dollars couldn't figure out in 2010. How to make a horror movie work on screen. But the universal horror movies of the 1930s may also have worked because they got their timing right. Director Todd Browning rolled cameras on Dracula in 1930 when the worst drought in 300 years had just transformed 23 American states into a dust bowl. The stock market had had one of its worst crashes of all time in October the year before. 1,300 banks failed the same year Dracula came out. While Dracula was in production, there were food riots in Minneapolis, and the Nazi party won 6 million votes and became Germany's second largest political party. Dark movies for dark, dark times. Taking a cue from Hamilton Dean's stage production— Universal released Dracula on Valentine's Day, 1931. It became their highest grossing picture that year, followed by Frankenstein in November. And in December, Paramount previewed Robert Mamoulian's astonishingly perverted Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which would win an Oscar for its leading man, Frederick March, and his performance as the two-faced titular pervert. Dracula came at the right time, but also from the right team. An Ocean's Eleven crew of self-destructive misfits assembled by Junior. Dracula's been described as a movie about a man with a drinking problem, made by people with drinking problems. That would include director Todd Browning, who killed a friend and broke all his teeth out in a drunk driving accident back in 1915. Star Bella Lugosi, the World War I veteran who spent his life addicted to alcohol and drugs, and leading lady Helen Chandler, a child star of the stage who destroyed her career with booze and pills. She would be gruesomely disfigured in 1950 when she lit her bed on fire with a cigarette while drunk. And Dracula was made by World War I veterans. A lot of the universal horror films were. Actually, most of the universal horror films were. James Whale, who directed Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and The Old Dark House, had fought on the Western Front and spent years as a prisoner of war. He never talked about his service, but ultimately killed himself in 1957, writing a note that his nerves were shot and he depended on pills to sleep at night. Edgar G. Ulmer, who directed The Black Cat for Universal, was a German teenager left homeless by World War I. Dracula cinematographer Karl Freund would go on to direct Universal's The Mummy. He'd served 90 days in the German army during the war before being discharged for being too fat. To make sure he stayed that fat, he drank two gallons of beer a day for the rest of the war. The Invisible Man's writer, R.C. Sheriff, was severely wounded in the fighting near Ypres. Actor Claude Raine, star of The Invisible Man, lost 90% of the vision in his right eye and had received permanent vocal cord damage in a gas attack at Vimy. Ernest Thesiger... A character actor who appeared in The Old Dark House and Bride of Frankenstein served in the British Army and came under artillery fire while celebrating Christmas Day in a barn. All twelve of his friends were blown to pieces before his eyes. And then there was Bella, the soldier who survived the Eastern Front by hiding beneath the corpses of his friends. Dracula plays like a bad dream, where vampire bees emerge from their tiny bee coffins, and possums wander crumbling crypts. It's slow and mannered, stiff as a waxworks, populated by pale-faced cadavers, but it blended anxiety about World War I, sex, death, women, venereal disease, necrophilia, and xenophobia into a surreal, claustrophobic nightmare. And a lot of its most nightmarish qualities come from Renfield. Dracula begins the way World War I began, with a young man being sent to Europe. 59 years old in Stoker's novel, Renfield's 32 in the movie, closer in age to the enlisted men who fought and died in Europe. Like Hutter in Nosferatu, Renfield is deployed to Europe in the name of duty, sent by his bosses to Transylvania to service a client. He arrives in Count Dracula's empty, ruined castle, the dark heart of the old world, dwarfed by the destruction he finds there, his peppy, jazz-age spirit slowly sinking in the face of this vast, abandoned tomb. The desolate environment overwhelms him, pressing him down, an enormous necropolis that swallows him whole, subsuming his personality, entangling him in an old, rotten spider's web. After the degraded, living corpses of Europe have had their way with him, Renfield comes home to England deranged, obsessed with death and blood. Most of Dracula is shot flat and straightforward, with a minimum of style, but Renfield's scenes are like something out of a German Expressionist nightmare. His asylum cell slashed into harsh geometric shapes by the bars over his window. Unlike the other men in the movie who move their bodies as little as possible, essentially talking heads on suits of clothes, Renfield's feral physicality echoes Mac Schreck's bug-eyed Count Warlock in Nosferatu. Renfield encounters Count Dracula in the midst of this European devastation, A living corpse that feeds on the blood of the young sent from their homes to the ruins of the Old World to die. Renfield also encounters that other snare for young men deployed to Europe in World War I. Sexy young women. Because if vampires are about disease, the disease at the heart of 1931's Dracula is venereal. Venereal. Earlier, I said that Dracula stands as the first true American horror movie. I lied. In the late 20s and early 30s, another group of American horror movies were cleaning up at the box office. And they, too, grew out of the fertile soil of World War I. Sex hygiene films. Shocked! at the number of enlisted men who showed up for basic training with VD. In 1917, the Surgeon General began a campaign to put America on guard to threats against their sexual health, mostly from foreigners. The very first motion picture produced by the United States government was 1917's Fit to Fight, in which five wholesome American boys join the army, go to a training camp, and get venereal disease. Proper medical care will not only prevent danger to others, but may shorten and prevent complications of the disease in the infected man. A soldier who does not report to the medical officer at once if he suspects he has gonorrhea is in fact very dangerous. He is dangerous to everyone in his unit and to everyone with whom he comes in contact. Known by distributors as clap operas, these movies became wildly popular. The first of them had been 1915's Damaged Goods, a VD film based on a VD play, which sold 5,000 tickets per day when it was released in Detroit. And the police had to be deployed to manage the box office line. It got so rowdy. Damaged Goods was re-released in 1917 and 1918, both to huge box office. Sex hygiene films were such moneymakers that by 1919, industry magazine Exhibitor's Trade Review felt compelled to run an announcement. To whom it may concern, this publication will hereafter accept neither advertising nor publicity concerning any picture dealing with venereal disease or sex Hygiene, which is intended for commercial exploitation in the theaters of the United States before mixed audiences in the manner of dramatic productions. Sex hygiene films shocked middle-class morality, even as middle-class audiences lined up to buy tickets. There were ones made for female audiences only, ones made for male audiences only, and most shockingly, sex hygiene films for mixed audiences. But the separate sex hygiene films sent really interesting messages. In classroom instructional movies and in theaters, boys were taught that their testes created desires which, if controlled, make possible creative effort in art and music and all the finer experiences. But uncontrolled, they are destructive and dangerous. But they are also a great source of personal power. The safest method of guarding your health and that of your loved ones is by keeping yourself under control. The know-it-all person may tell you that a man must have sex relations to keep well and develop strength in his organs. That idea is entirely false. Medical science has definitely proved that a man can be healthy and actually stronger if he avoids sex relations. A woman learned that if she was infected with a venereal disease like syphilis or gonorrhea, she would give birth to defective children. But, interestingly enough, the responsibility for infecting her lay solely with the man for bringing this disease into the family home. Women were not blamed for getting VD. They were victims of men. The films aimed at men emphasized that VD was curable. Consult your family doctor. Films aimed at women told them that there was no cure for this curse. Please avoid at all costs. Sexual desire had become a disease. This ignorance of sex and the possible effects of illicit sexual intercourse have left a vast trail of human wreckage. Countless numbers of blind, deformed and hopelessly insane. This frightful toll levied upon our country as the price of ignorance exceeds in numbers the combined battle casualties of all nations participating in the World War. One military-issued pamphlet basically reads as a synopsis of Renfield's opening portion of 1931's Dracula. It is, of course, perfectly normal for you to be attracted to the opposite sex. If you are normal, you look forward to the establishment of your own home. But military life separates such men as you from the normal contacts of home and postpone the time when you can satisfy the normal mating instinct in a decent manner. For millions of men, this means a choice between continents and a resort to prostitutes. Ever since there have been armies, they have been followed by droves of loose women and other human dregs ready to exploit and feed on the animal instincts of young men. Rinfield encounters some of these loose women and human dregs ready to exploit and feed on young men in Dracula. The Brides of Dracula, clad in flowing white fashionable funeral shrouds that trail behind them like wedding dresses. Their hair slicked back, their smoky eyes rimmed in black eyeliner, their lipstick dark. They crawl out of their coffins to feed on this innocent young man. Who is only rescued from a fate worse than death when Dracula banishes the brides because the man belongs to him? The bride's look is familiar. It's the look of the vampire. And I don't mean blood sucking vampires, I mean a specific vampire that American audiences had already seen on the silver screen by 1931 Theda Barra's Vampire. <laughs> Who? Theta Barra, the mysterious, seductive, dangerous silent film star who first blended sex and death into a head rush hit of Lust Mord back in 1915. Hollywood's first big sex symbol, Barra was nicknamed The Vamp after her career making role as a sexually voracious woman billed as The Vampire in the 1915 silent film. A Fool There Was, based on the Broadway play of the same name, which was in turn based on the Rudyard Kipling poem, The Vampire, which was itself based on Philip Byrne Jones' painting of a woman in a nightdress straddling an unconscious man, also called The Vampire, that caused a sensation when it was first displayed in 1897, the year that Bram Stoker published Dracula. A Fool There Was is about a nice American man with a wife and children sent to Europe by his bosses where he meets Bara, described in the intertitles as a woman of the vampire species. Clearly, one of the 19th century psychic vampire ladies, she seduces this hapless American Romeo, depletes him of his life force, leaving him weak and withered, humiliates him in front of his family, degrades him and ruins him, and still he begs her for more. He's left a babbling Renfield-esque shell. So some of him lived, the final inner title reads, in what could be an epitaph for all the shell-shocked veterans returning from the war. But the most of him died. The brides in 1931's Dracula look like Fita Barra, even adapting her signature pose, pressing their chins to their chests so that their eyes show a crescent of white beneath the pupils as she looks up into the camera, making her appear both wanton, hungry, and inhuman. The venereal disease connection gets stronger still when it comes to Mina, who in the movie is Dr. Seward's daughter. By the late 1920s, sex hygiene films had become less lectury and more dramatic. Movies like Is Your Daughter Safe? Are You Fit to Marry? And Pitfalls of Passion played capacity houses accompanied by lectures all over America. Usually, they were about men leading younger women astray like in Road to Ruin when Sally and Eve start out reading a racy novel which leads them to meet the older married man Don at a roadhouse and he gives them VD, an unwanted pregnancy, an illegal abortion, and ultimately death. Women in these movies were led astray by these older, more experienced men who gave them a disease for which there was no cure. A disease that contaminated them and made them impure. A disease they could pass on to their families. A disease that, as Mina says to her fiancé in 1931's Dracula after she's bitten by the older European Count Dracula. Darling, you're not going to die. You're going to live. No, John. You mustn't touch me. And you mustn't kiss me ever again. What are you trying to say? Professor, you make him understand. I can't. It's all over, John. Our love, our life together. Maybe I'm making something out of nothing. Maybe it's all just an accident. This could just be one of those pointy headed theories that academic nerds like me love to spin. And yet, Junior Limley lived in terror of venereal disease lining his underpants every day with a layer of sanitary pads designed to protect his precious jewels from grody gonorrhea germs. And remember all those nurses in the aisles of Hamilton Dean's Dracula productions? The movie version of Dracula used the same trick, stationing sterile, hygienic nurses in movie theater lobbies during the film's run. And then... There's the fact that Lugosi, when you watch his performance, he moves much more slowly than the other actors on screen. He speaks deliberately and phonetically. He's stiff and stately, wrapped either in his black cloak or bolted into his evening wear like a corpse in a coffin at a funeral home viewing. And he is a corpse. A corpse who spreads infection. Junior made it very easy for audiences to pick up the disease subtext of Dracula. A sick subconscious signal we've become numb to by overexposure to vampires, but it is there most strongly in the 1931 version of Dracula. Vampires spread disease because they are corpses, cadavers, dead, decaying flesh. They are not some other form of life or human being with cold hands. They are dead bodies, and kissing one is unclean and unhygienic in the literal medical sense of the terms kissing a vampire is necrophilia and after World War I when men returned home shell-shocked bodies and faces blasted apart many of them just waiting to kill themselves later living like they were already dead you wonder as the last intertitle says in Theta Barra's A Fool There Was so some of him lived but most of him died And you think, is that what wives of shell shocked veterans felt after World War I? When their husbands returned with different minds, different bodies, different faces? Did they feel like they were being forced to share their homes with a stranger? Did they feel like they were having to share their beds with a corpse? Count Dracula is a living corpse, a putrid corpse, spreading disease, following our boys home from Europe, infecting women on the home front and making defective children like Renfield. Even more unsettling, at the end of the movie, after Mina is cured of her infection, Lucy, Dracula's other vampire child, is still out there. A loose thread wandering around and killing children, we assume. And the brides are also still at large, lurking in the ruins of Europe, biding their time. Waiting for another world war, when there will be more nice foreign boys to infect. Dracula didn't come out at a good time. The Great Depression had gutted the film industry. Between 1930 and 1932, audience attendance dropped by a third, driving desperate distributors to try anything, from double features to gimmicks like Dish Night, when they gave away free dishes to lure people back. But Dracula was a hit. Why? Why? It may have tapped into a pent-up panic over infection and disease that the sex hygiene films had also tapped into. It may have manifested fears unleashed by World War I that gnawed on America's subconscious. It may have just tapped into audiences' hunger for something new. But whatever accounted for its success, all it was was a very popular movie until 1938, when a Los Angeles exhibitor programmed Dracula and Frankenstein on a double bill, and the paired features broke house records. That October, the gruesome twosome roamed America, gobbling up everyone's cash, and Universal Monsters entered pop culture overdrive. In Cincinnati, they shattered a six-year house record, and they did the same thing in Indianapolis, too. At the Rialto in Manhattan, Dracula and Frankenstein tag team audiences, running around the clock for ten sold-out screenings every day. Dracula's success helped pave the way for the release of Carl Theodore Dreyer's own austere vampire film, Vampire. Released in 1932, Denmark's master director, Dreyer wanted to make *Vampire* because as he said, "Vampires are the fashionable thing at the time. Dracula had been a hit stage play in Denmark, and Dreyer didn't really care about the subject matter of his movie, so long as he was able to secure funding. I wanted to break new ground for the cinema. That is all. Dreyer's film was funded by its lead actor, a member of the aristocracy, and it was a bit of a vanity project for him. And he dribbled cash into it. Shot on location to save money. The cast and crew bunked at the chateau that provided their location. And the movie plays out almost like something from David Lynch's Eraserhead. Dreamy and disconnected. Maxime Gorky wrote on cinema, It is a life without color and without sound. The life of ghosts. And he pretty much sounds like he's talking about *Vampire*, which seems to be set in the space between life and death. As characters float through a wrecked chateau, apparently nodding out on cough syrup, offering each other cups of tea as a cure for anything. It's disgustingly tactile and textured. It feels like a movie shot inside a corpse. Instead of adapting Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's an adaptation of Sheridan La Fanu's Carmilla. Post-production took forever. Not just because of budget trouble, but because the dialogue had to be dubbed into French and German, as well as a preparation of a Danish version. So UFA, the distributor, decided to hold it, because they wanted to see how Universal's Dracula and Frankenstein did when they were released. And then they saw how well they cleaned up at the box office in Denmark. Their expectations for Vampire were sky high. At the world premiere in Berlin, audience laughed Dreyer's film off the screen. In Vienna, audiences hated Vampyr so much that when the box office wouldn't refund their tickets, they rioted. In March of 33, Vampyr finally premiered in Copenhagen, Dreyer's hometown. He didn't even attend. The failure of Vampyr destroyed Dreyer's production company and kicked him onto a downhill slide that ended in a nervous breakdown. He didn't make another movie until 1943, 10 years later. In a lot of ways, Dracula was cursed. Carl Limley Jr. may have known his monsters, but he didn't know money. He heaped cash on his horror flicks, hoping they'd be hits, but each one cost more than the one before, and many of them didn't gross like Dracula and Frankenstein. Meanwhile, with money tight, his dad, Carl Sr., bet Universal to secure a really risky loan. To get $750,000 in cash to cover what Junior needed, Carl Sr. had to give a company called Standard Capital a 90-day option to buy Universal outright for $5.5 million. He was gambling that they couldn't get that kind of money together so fast. He was wrong. As Junior's last production, the prestige musical Showboat, directed by James Whale, went over budget yet again, Standard Capital bought Universal Studios for $5.5 million on March 14, 1936. One month later, Jr. resigned. He would never make another motion picture. Carl Sr. had already retired. He'd be dead by 1939. In his final years, he spent all of his time and almost all of his fortune getting Jews out of Germany and into the United States. At one point, he tried to bring over the entire Jewish population of his hometown, Laupheim. Ultimately, he personally evacuated over 300 Jewish families. Junior, however, didn't go out a hero like his dad. He would live off the $5 million sale price for Universal in a remote Hollywood mansion where he'd spend the rest of his life locked into his bedroom every night by his housekeeper, where he would watch television by himself, catching the fevered products of his younger nightmare imagination on the Late Late Show. When he died in 1979, they buried him in a t-shirt, there was a lien on his mansion, and the Oscar he'd won for All Quiet on the Western Front had long gone missing. Showboat, ironically, turned out to be a big hit, but all that money went to Standard Capital, not Junior, and not his dad, who bet so big on his son. But the Dracula curse didn't stop there. Dwight Frye, who played Renfield, was too young to serve in World War I, but his success as the PTSD version of Renfield, and he really does own the film, saw him cast for years as, in his own words, nothing but idiots, lunatics, and half-wits. Too old to fight in World War II, but desperate to help the war effort. In 1943, he took on crushing hours at Lockheed as a draftsman designing tools. Unfortunately, As he piled up shift after shift after shift, he exacerbated a heart condition that he'd hidden from everyone in his life because, as a Christian scientist, he didn't believe in medical treatment. In a cruel twist, he received word that he'd gotten a non-idiot, non-half-wit, non-lunatic part in a new film as Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of War, Newton D. Baker. But three days before shooting started, while boarding a bus with his wife and son on their way to a celebratory double feature, he had a fatal heart attack and died in the aisle. And then there was Bella. Dracula haunted Bella Lugosi for the rest of his life. He'd played the Count on stage and he had screwed up his hand when he negotiated with Universal by lobbying too hard for the role in the movie, tipping off Junior that he'd accept almost anything that he was offered. The leading man who played Jonathan Harker in the film got $2,000 per week. Lugosi as Count Dracula, 500. During World War II, Lugosi toured a stage production of Dracula, and the role would follow him for the rest of his life. It tight-cast him, and because he was an addict, and terrible at managing money, and terrible at negotiating contracts, but he insisted on doing it all himself because he was an egomaniac, the movies that wanted Bela Lugosi got smaller and smaller and smaller, and his take-home pay got less and less and less. By all accounts, Lugosi was a pain. He was arrogant, he was vain, he was a horn dog who never quit. But his force of will was incredible. He acted in a language he didn't know. He refused to slow down or show moderation ever in his life. He volunteered for World War I and fought on a front where he was most likely to get killed. He refused to stop lobbying Universal for the role of Dracula, even though everyone told him to cut it out because he was just showing them how desperate he was. And after that, he refused to stop playing Dracula throughout his career, even though every time he performed the count, it trapped him more and more and more. In 1955, Lugosi, emaciated, on his fourth divorce and dead broke, begged a judge to commit him to a state hospital where he could kick his drug addiction. He also agreed to appear in a public service film about drug addiction. I'm so very grateful to the state uh, hospital that I, they allowed me and took me when I volunteered. How long have you been in the institution, Mr. Three months. Three months? Because 90 days is the state law. Mm-hmm. It's minimum. What did you weigh when you came in, brother? How much underweight were you when you entered the... Oh, I was 45 pounds underweight. 45? Yes. Have you put most of that back? Oh yes, I regained 21 pounds. Feel like you're all well, You feel, feel like a million dollar. You feel like Dracula, really? Okay. Sure, yeah. that's his best. I'm looking forward to work again. I understand that. I had an assignment uh, playing the star part in uh, The Blue Goes West. Ah, uh-huh. yes, and uh, Eddie, Woods. Eddie Woods. Less than a year after coming out of the hospital, this time, Lugosi died of a heart attack. He asked that he be buried in Dracula's cape. Bella Lugosi came to embody Dracula for generations of Americans. When you imagine a vampire, you probably think he speaks with an Eastern European accent. That's Lugosi. In Stoker's novel, Dracula speaks perfect English. But more than that, Lugosi's life story became a part of the vampire legend. We see a vampire as a doomed, tragic figure, a stranger in a strange land, lost, haunted, and out of time. A creature who's addicted to blood. A creature whose appetite and addiction will ultimately destroy him. A man whose will will ultimately lead him into a dead end. A doomed European with a dark past haunted by ghosts. When we see that in Dracula, or any vampire, that's not from Bram Stoker. That's what we know about the life of Bela Lugosi. In an interview with the film magazine, Motion Picture Classic, later in his life, Lugosi was asked about World War I, and in his answer, he gave one of the best answers to that old chestnut of a question that haunts horror writers and fans everywhere. Why do people like this stuff? During the war, men fought, maneuvered, bribed, and schemed to get into the frontline trenches. In their hearts, in their conscious minds, they believed that they were striving for that place in order to provide deeds of duty and mercy. But mixed in with this high motive with the ghoulish compulsion to see men torn and bloody in agony. The need to look upon suffering, which is part of their destiny. He was talking about World War I, but it goes for horror movies too. We watch because we're motivated by a ghoulish compulsion to look upon suffering because it's another part of our destiny. So some of him lived, but the most of him died. Bela Lugosi became the first modern vampire. A World War I veteran lost in the 20th century, driven by a compulsive hunger that would ultimately seal his doom. World War I is the pivotal event in modern horror. It destroyed any sentiment about death we may have had. It made death mundane, commonplace, and inevitable. It destroyed all our illusions about ourselves. Prayer was useless. Hope was a delusion. Honor, glory, patriotism, sacrifice. Just words. On this earth, heroes died first leaving nothing but monsters behind. Charles Hamilton Sorley was a cross-country runner who volunteered for the war and rapidly rose to captain. He was killed in action by a sniper at the Battle of Luce, October 13, 1915. He was 20 years old. His grave is empty because they never found his body. He was a poet, and this poem... His last was found in his kit bag. When you see millions of the mouthless dead across your dreams in pale battalions go, say not soft things as other men have said. That you'll remember, for you need not so. Give them not praise, for deaf how should they know it is not curses heaped on each gashed head. Nor tears, their blind eyes see not your tears flow Nor honor, it is easy to be dead Say only this, they are dead Then add thereto Yet many a better one has died before Then scanning all the overcrowded mass Should you perceive one face that you loved heretofore It is a spook, none wears the face you knew Great death has made all his forevermore.